Welcome to Medicine for Good podcast. I am your host, Dr. Julieta Gabiola, clinical professor of medicine at Stanford University. What drew me to medicine was the science, the innovation, and the promise for a comfortable life. But what has kept me in medicine are the real people, their lives, and their stories, as well as the translation of medical innovations into practical applications. This podcast will explore experiences beyond the walls and corridors of the hospital, laboratories, and clinics. I invite you to share in our journey seeking to preserve and improve our lives, our sense of balance, and our well-being. Welcome to Medicine for Good podcast. I'm Julieta Gabriela. I'm hosting this podcast today. And today will be an interesting presentation because I will be co-hosting this with Alisa Salas. And we have eight students joining us to share their views about mental health. This is just the second series of our mental health discussion during COVID, and we may also involve experiences before COVID. One of the silver lining of COVID-19 is that everyone seems to feel stress, right? So I couldn't think of anyone who would tell me that they haven't been stressed by COVID-19. So COVID-19 had normalized this, and I think it gave us a universal permission to talk about mental health. And so this is why we are here now. I would like to introduce Alisa Salas, who is my co-host today. One of you, you may have a coughing fit during the episode because I myself had COVID-19 and I'm still recovering from it. So Alisa Salas is a sophomore at Columbia University. Her multiracial background drives her to improve resources for the underserved and marginalized people through a dialogue on culture and tradition and mental health. So this is Alisa Salas, who would introduce the podcast today. Welcome, Alisa. Hi, thank you so much for that warm introduction. Before I introduce the panelists, I have a bit of information that our student team has compiled about mental health statistics in America. A trigger warning, the following contains information about suicide and oppression. The nation faces a worsening mental health crisis, and the COVID-19 pandemic is not making it any easier. Prior to the novel coronavirus, COVID-19 pandemic, an estimated 20.6% of adults experienced some kind of mental health issue in 2019, which is equal to over 47 million Americans. This increase in mental health issues has led to an increase in suicides and suicidal ideation as well. California itself saw 10.5 suicides per every 100,000 males and 3.5 suicides per every 100,000 females. There were 142 suicides in Santa Clara County alone in 2017, and the suicide rate was an above average eight suicides per 100,000 people in 2019. Around 13% of children ages 12 to 17 reported to have suffered from at least one major depressive episode in 2020. Since 2003, suicide has consistently increased in the Bay Area, along with the rest of the state and the nation. During the COVID-19 pandemic, we have seen an upward trend in mental health and suicide rates. With this great uncertainty and loss looming over all of us, mental health has taken a severe hit. Since May 2020, on average, 
more than one in three adults in the United States has reported symptoms of anxiety and or a depressive disorder, compared to only one in 10 adults reporting these same symptoms from before the pandemic in January to June of 2019. Additionally, a survey conducted by the CDC in June 2020 revealed that 26% of 18 to 24-year-olds reported contemplating suicide in the 30 days before completing the survey. Mental health is such an important topic, and we are eager to raise awareness with our panel here today. So without further ado, I will introduce the panelists, and they will give a brief introduction about themselves. So first, we have Kate Williams. Hi, my name's Kate. I'm a senior at Van High School, and I am the president of ROCK. It stands for Reach Out Care Now. It's a mental health organization on my campus, and I'm also the wellness commissioner for my Student Executive Council. Thank you so much. Next, we have Kiana. Hi, my name is Kiana. I'm Danette Navajo, and I'm a current sophomore attending Columbia University. I'm majoring in political science and ethnicity and race studies. On my own, I create social content that focuses on Indigenous identity with a special emphasis on lifting other Indigenous creators. Thank you so much. Next, we have Evan. Hello, I am Evan and I am a junior in high school. I am a leader of the KUDO Club, which stands for Kids Under 21, which deals with mental health awareness in my school. Next, we have John. Hello, I'm John Soleil. I am a resident physician at Stanford Hospital. I got a, a master's degree in molecular neuroscience at Johns Hopkins and then kind of veered off that course and found myself in psychiatry and will be completing that in the next couple of years. My interests are pretty broad along, I would say, the biopsychosocial continuum of psychiatry, but I have a certain predilection for the biologic basis of psychiatric disorders. Thank you. Next, we have Jamie. Hello, everyone. My name is Jamie Alberton. I'm a student, educator, and activist in the Bay Area. Thank you for having me today. Thank you. And lastly, we have Sophia. Hi, my name is Sophia, and I'm a junior at Lindbrook High School. Mental health is a topic that is close to my heart, and I have had the honor of being a part of Lindbrook's Alethea, which is a school student outreach publication that serves as a safe place for students to anonymously share their stories with the community. Welcome all, and Alisa, thank you for co-hosting this. So this is a really an interesting session today that I would like to welcome your views and experiences. So first, I, I like to ask any one of you, have you had experiences, either personal or anyone in your family, loved ones, colleagues, co-workers, or co-students who you thought experienced a mental health crisis or issues that you noticed? And how did you feel about that? And how did you reach out to that colleague or family or loved ones? Mental health runs a lot in my family. We have a lot of depression and anxiety is very common in my family. So we've definitely had many instances when someone has struggled personally. And I think that one of the most important tools with mental health is having a support system. And I wanted to provide that to my family and friends and want them to know that I am always there and open for them to confide in. And I will not be judgmental because I personally struggle from a lot of different mental health issues. And I provide a safe place for anyone who wants to confide in me. Obviously different people cope differently and some people do not wanna talk about everything all the time, but I try to make sure that I'm always open 24 seven day and night that I'll just be there for them to talk to and confide in. 
That is wonderful for you to share that, Evan. And in your experience, have there been any hesitance or barriers that you have to jump through dealing with discussion or sharing your experiences with one another? For me personally, I'm very open about my mental health issues. I have struggled with depression since I was five years old. I was diagnosed at five years old and I am very open about that. I share my story with so many different people and I hope that I inspire my friends and family with what I've been through. Other people, especially my friends and family who have more recent diagnoses are not as open, but they usually are open with me just because they know I'm a non-judgmental person and I understand that everyone suffers from mental health differently and they cope differently. And that's completely understandable and completely okay. And I just want to remind people all the time that it is okay to struggle because we all have our own struggles in our different ways. And it's totally justifiable to not want to be open about it all the time, but it is healthy to let that off your shoulders because it can be such a burden. Any other experiences out there that any one of you had gone through? It doesn't have to be your story. It could be a story of someone that you know and still maintaining anonymity. I really appreciate your conviction around being able to share your story. I think that that people like you help to normalize that stigma, and which is a whole topic in and of itself. So thank you. I think an in, in interesting, it's not necessarily a counterpoint, but another perspective is kind of the mental health of physicians and the mental health of those taking care of those with mental health issues. And in COVID pandemic, particularly among the resident physician population, I've single-handedly seen people start really burning out the amount that people have to work and the, the struggles that you see. And after seeing so many people pass away from COVID, it really does start to wear on you. And I think that unfortunately among residents, it's really hard to be vocal and to express mental health concerns. This is a much broader topic, but just to, to not necessarily open the box entirely, but the discussion of mental health among physicians and the fact that we have to like reveal that to the medical board and that it just becomes a component to licensingship that kind of creates this really interesting dynamic where it's hard to kind of talk about your personal experience with mental health while also keeping professional boundaries. But I can say that the mental health of resident physicians is really important because the future doctors are just constantly stressed by this pandemic. And so I've seen myself the impact of that and the inability to garner support and access resources simply because making it known that you are having these issues can be a detriment to your career. And no one wants to say that. <laughs> no one wants that to be the thing, but it is the unfortunate reality. Talking about that, just to follow up on that, John, and thank you for opening the Pandora's box. So let me just follow <laughs> up on the stigma of mental health. As far as I remember, stigma existed long, long before even I started my career. And even during my career, when I was a medical student, even for me, I thought I had my own biases, right? I always categorize people, oh, that person will go into psychiatry, that person will go into internal medicine, and that person will go into surgery, just based on their decorum, their personality, et cetera. And that already was a bias. And I was biased at that time against mental health, right? So I said, oh, the people who have to resolve their own conflicts and issues growing up, they go into psychiatry because it helps them, blah, blah, blah. So I myself suffered from those. And now like dialing 35 years later and the change of that, because I obviously married a psychiatrist, and I learned a lot from that. And even when I was a resident at Stanford, they actually encouraged us 
to go and talk to a psychotherapist. And at that time, I said, I am too busy to talk to a psychotherapist. Why do I have to talk to a psychotherapist? It was a waste of my time. And two sessions later, I was talking about my father. So talking about mental health issues, our own anxieties, our own lack of self-confidence, self-esteem, you name it. It is so difficult and people are definitely biased. So that's long time ago and it still exists now. And biases in the workplace, you know, stigma institutionally, stigma by media, stigma in our own selves. We are also going through that stigma that we are not worth talking about our issues. Us people now, you guys are the young generation, and I know the stigma existed way, way before, so all the old people have their own stigma. You as the young generation of today, what would you tell institutions, leaders, psychiatrists, educators, health professionals, what do you like to change and how could we turn this around and say, let's talk about this stigma and let's deal with it and act on it. Like 50 years ago, people don't talk about their cancers, right? They talk about cancer as like, gee, you know, they don't talk about it. They talk about it as like, oh, they have a big C. But now they talk about cancer liberally. So people now have a lot of initiatives to address cancer, cancer this, cancer that, and this and that. Why don't we take that initiative to deal with mental health? So let's start the ball rolling. Let's talk about it now. What do you think you will tell your leaders in order to counter this stigma? Personally, as a leader and as an educator, I make sure that my students, we do like check-ins with them to see how they're feeling emotionally and mentally and differentiate how that would feel for them, especially during COVID and seeing them have a lack of access to technology sometimes makes it difficult for them to express themselves over Zoom. So I think there are certain things you can tell leaders that you want to see change, but you also can take it within yourself to see what you can do and how you can be that change. And in my position as an educator, that's where I try to help my students feel like they're understood and that they can empathize with other students because they all feel similar during this time. That's wonderful. Like build that connection with your students and check in with them frequently. Okay. I think a huge thing that helped destigmatize mental health is just creating open spaces where young people can openly talk about their mental health. I noticed that with my friends, the more we talk about it, the more you learn about each other and the more you feel comfortable sharing. And I think if institutions just already created that space, I think having young people talk about it more, especially as it will help. So building a platform for discussion and dialogue and talk more about it. The stigma comes from lack of understanding and knowledge about it, right? Maybe fear, maybe fear of being judged. As John says, that sometimes losing your license or losing your position in a place like in the medical field, it's not too easy for people to talk about their mental health issues. I know for a fact, as an educator at Stanford, we had one request to put our mental health or our counseling center outside campus so people don't see you when you go to that clinic. So you see that even our own selves, you know, like stigmatize ourselves 
also. I do appreciate every input that you may have. Any other suggestions out there? I'm going to try and take a crack at where maybe that some of that stigma comes from. And I feel like it's probably a lot bigger of an issue than I'm really going to be able to discuss in one kind of sentence. But I wonder sometimes if the stigma, how many people have heart disease, how many people have hyperlipidemia, and we don't, it's like no one cares <laughs> in terms of what it means to have hyperlipidemia or to have heart disease. And yet this notion that when you have depression, I think part of it is because mental illness really impacts the core tenets of who we are, identity and personality. And when you start to drag in such core tenets of being, diagnoses and issues with those diagnoses become kind of wrapped up in our identity. It becomes something people don't want others to think about in who we are. Because, you know, someone tells you they have hyperlipidemia, no one changes how they view that individual in terms of how they engage in relationships. But when someone's depressed, for instance, and they're sad, and you become labeled as that person with depression, people, they start to associate that sadness, that anhedonia, the lack of motivation, sleeping all the time with who you are. And I wonder sometimes if stigma is perpetrated or the stigma is predicated on that core tenant of, and that's what also just makes mental health so much more important because it does impact the core tenants of our being. And so I think that addressing these issues, again, is multifaceted, it's multi-pronged, like how I see it is kind of like you have to start from the both ends where imagine if in school mental health was a part of health class and talking about these issues and normalizing them and making it normal to just talk about how we feel, our emotions. I feel like that would wonderful kind of starting point for, you know, the future. And then you also definitely need a top-down approach where the people at the top are saying, we're open to this, we're, we're putting resources where we can. So that way, as the individuals who believe mental health to be in a core component of health and care, have the resources and wherewithal and space to actually engage in that. So that's just some of my thoughts around the topic. A lack of resources. <laughs> so uh, that is a prominent barrier. And that lack of resources has been since I've known medicine. You know, there are not enough resources to mental health. Insurance companies don't cover a lot of the visits and go figure, right? So not a whole lot of resources generated to support it. So I think that might also be another thing that we could be activists towards is to have more resources. Yeah, I actually wanted to touch a little bit on what John's point is like the just the focus on identity within mental health and more particular, the cultural aspect. You know, I have like a lot of like elders and people within my community who have gone through like serious like traumas and like have gone through serious things that the idea of mental health and addressing mental health is not even a consideration because they don't want to go back to that trauma. And so it creates like this generational trauma that goes like throughout that is taught throughout the community going on. I mean, even now, I still have grandparents who can't even talk about their experiences that they've gone through, just because it's so painful to even bring up. And I, I think that's hard to address in our community as well. It's just that there's a cultural barrier to addressing mental health. And also you mentioned the disparity of even having the resources to even like begin a conversation about that. I mean, even as we approach COVID, the younger generation had to like step up and be able to take care of these elders who are still trying to heal. And these are like the people that are trying to pre like preserve our culture. Like without them, they wouldn't be having like these stories and like the just the overall like continuation of the community. 
So I think that's also another thing that we should be addressing as well is that there's still like people, like elder people that are experiencing these mental health issues that have never even had the chance to open up about their stories or maybe don't even have, you know, the language to even communicate that to anybody. Yeah, talking about generation gaps and ability to talk about different issues in mental health. How about cultural and traditions and stuff like that? Or communities, like different cultures don't want to talk about it. It's like, I don't want to talk about this issue. What do you think about that? I guess it's like, I can see like both points, like as far as like, you know, you have somebody that went through like a huge ordeal, maybe like their whole community, like were subject to, you know, boarding schools or possibly like they were killed by like the government. That idea of like suppressing that is like a coping mechanism, which I know like isn't like a good thing overall. But the idea of having to revert back and to acknowledge that at such an age is, is a hard thing to do. And I wish I had like the chance to talk with like my great grandparents about what they've like gone through and hopefully be able to address that. But again, there was still that language barrier that I wasn't able to even like communicate with them or I had to have like my mom or like my grandmother and able to like help me talk to them. And also like just depends on like, cause you know, I'm indigenous. So like it also depends on like the tribe as well. But there, as far as like seeking like mental health, a lot of it is through ceremonies and you know, different types of like cultural, like medicines and herbs and stuff we use. But I think actually having like a conversation is something that's rarely used. And at least in my community, <laughs> I think definitely. But I think one thing that actually like just connects us all with despite like age is the idea of like having a family, just the family unit being there. That's something that both like whether you're older or younger, like you revert to that idea of like, as long as like you have someone there with you, you, you'll be able to get through it and having that support system as well. But I live like around like 30 minutes outside the Navajo reservation and like all of like my relatives live on the reservation. So they've been like experiencing the onslaughts of everything going on with like even just like getting vaccines at this moment has been like a difficult process for like my grandmother and my other like great aunts and stuff. And there's another aspect of like mental health as well as like the racial discrimination that's been happening in our community just because of these like high rates of like COVID on the Navajo reservation, less access to like resources and technology. I mean, already we were at a disparity before like COVID even happened. You had like this community who's been behind in technology and education, health, mental health, they've been behind in everything. And for them to get like hit the heaviest with COVID and having the ability to even reach out, it's been difficult. And I don't have like a secure answer on like how to address that or have like a good perspective on it to be able to speak about it. Yeah, I echo that. So individually, like for you guys, when you face through a mental health crisis or not, not even a crisis, an issue that you're experiencing, how do you cope with it? And what are all your coping mechanisms that work for you and that work for others? Well, despite like having a very supportive environment, I cope a lot through isolation. I have bad social anxiety and bad depressive disorder. And I cope a lot through self-isolation, which really impacts my relationships with my friends and family. And my isolation has run through generations of my family. That's what my grandma does. Her mom passed away around Christmas time and she doesn't even celebrate Christmas anymore. She just stays in her room all day. 
and doesn't really move. And I don't have that experience with losing a parent or anything like that. But whenever I'm going through something hard, I stay in my room, I don't come out. And I just, it just leaves me with my thoughts. And it's very unhealthy because it's not combating my issues. It's not combating my anxiety. It's not combating my depression because it's only enhancing it and feeding it because my social anxiety, it's just feeding into that habit of staying away from people. And it causes me to never grow or move past that social aspect that I have. And with COVID, it only was worse because now we're almost, we're encouraged to stay inside. We're encouraged to stay in our rooms. We're encouraged not to interact with people basically. And that only justified my isolating myself because that's what literally we were mandated to do at certain points. And it was unhealthy for everyone. I feel like everyone in COVID times were able to almost sympathize with each other and relate on a deeper level that no one ever had because we were all almost alone and together at the same time because we were in the same situation. We were in similar situations, but we were all alone at a certain point. But it's amazing because it stretched across every aspect of every economic group, every racial group, because we were all in that same place of having to be alone at home, having to isolate. And it was a bonding experience, but it also negatively impacted my experience because it just really drove my depression. And I had to get a lot of help from that experience. Are you finding that you could zoom in to your counselor or therapist, right? So I, I think that is available to everyone that if you cannot get the support from your loved ones, from your peers, from people you respect and trust, there's also the presence of therapists who could get you through and help you walk the path, right? And experience a better trajectory than feeling like you're falling on those holes multiple times and you can't get out of those holes. So know that those services are available. And more than ever, I think telepsychiatry has been a lot more prominent nowadays. It's not that the technology was not there before, but again, it was not supported by funding and stuff like that. Who pays for that coverage during COVID? That is a lot more available. And I think it will remain to be available even post-COVID. And I'm hoping that we will be talking about post COVID soon, but for now, I think it will be here to stay for a little while, unfortunately. So any other kind of like words of wisdom out there? I actually wanted to kind of touch upon coping strategies. And so one thing that I found really helpful was journaling. And recently I attended the UC Davis Mental Health Conference. And I've actually learned like the difference between journaling and like having a diary. So I think having a diary is really helpful because you can kind of just rant and kind of just like let all of like the thoughts that are like in your head and just kind of like write them out on paper. And so it's not like you would necessarily like have someone else like there to listen, but it's just a way that you can get all of the thoughts onto paper and be able to just get it off of your mind. But like when it comes to journaling, I think I would like to try journaling a lot more. I feel like I've been keeping a diary, but a journal is more like you just take like these thoughts and then you can categorize them into perhaps there are different thought traps or there are different distortions, thought distortions, and kind of just 
bring more awareness to it and being more mindful with it. I think that having a journal would be really helpful. I guess if that's like a suggestion that perhaps people haven't tried yet and would like to try that. So yeah, just keeping a diary and also keeping a journal to bring more awareness to thoughts. That is wonderful. Yeah. And of course, journaling is non-judgmental, right? So you could pour out all your issues on your journal and it doesn't judge you. And you could put things in perspective. That's an excellent idea. Any ideas out there? Some people start doing their crochet or painting or more gardening, walking. During this time, you have to have, just like if you look at the pressure cooker, right? So the pressure mounts and mounts and mounts inside. You know, if that pressure is not released, it will basically explode, right? So you don't want to be on a point of explosion to have such a release. So journaling is one, reaching out to people by Zoom or walking outside with your friend with your mask and stuff like that. There are a lot of other phenomenal ideas out there. And maybe we could put a website like, you know, suggestions on like how you could channel your energies and your sense of isolation and blah, blah, blah. And John has mentioned about a, you know, and I might forget about this and rather than putting it at the end, I would like to talk about suicide because suicide, if you follow it now during COVID, like if you follow the trajectory, the trajectory of that line is going up even each month. And there's a, a number that you could call. It's 1-800-273-8255. And I repeat, 1-800-273-8255 is the National Suicide Hotline. And there may be other links out there that you could also tell me on the chat, and I will be happy to announce them. In terms of coping mechanisms, before we finish on the coping mechanism area and jump on another topic on mental health. Any other coping mechanisms that you find useful nowadays? As far as like coping mechanisms, a few that I would definitely recommend, which would be positive self-talk and reminders, talking to a therapist, meditation, exercise, prayer, and leadership on something you're passionate about. And it's actually mental health, which got me into being a leader on talking about racial and equity conversations and basically giving presentations to people, giving presentations to older generations about equity and the intersectionality and the lens of the younger people on what they believe an equitable world looks like. So I feel like being able to realize where you are with your own mental health and then finding something to be an outlet to help you grow and to help you come out of your own kind of soul is definitely something motivational and will definitely help you come out of that kind of haziness. Yeah. So to reiterate, you know, be aware of where you are in your own space and then find your passion, serve others, find a community that support you. I think that an important point brought up is that coping skills exist on a spectrum, multiple spectrums. And one of those spectrums is good coping skills and not so good coping skills, unhealthy coping skills. And there are definitely ways to deal with things that aren't very helpful for us. And I think understanding what is not helpful is equally as powerful as understanding as what is helpful. So educating ourselves on what not to do can help kind of guide us towards what to do. And so knowing that we have a propensity, for instance, earlier, knowing we have a propensity for being isolated and knowing that we're kind of nearing that point 
helps us in kind of veering away from that and maybe leveraging journaling to recognize, you know what, the last six times I've journaled, I've talked about being alone. And it provides a little bit of insight into how we're doing. So I think that's one component. And then the other component spectrum is recognizing that you can, there's a spectrum of coping skills from really like biologically based where we try and lower our our adrenergic tone, the, the, the activation of our, of our hormones and our neurotransmitters and everything, lowering that by deep breathing and grounding exercises and doing things all the way to the really existential thought processes of who am I, where am I going, how do I get there and thinking things through. And somewhere in the middle of that is like going on a walk and hanging out with your dog. It's interesting because multiple studies now have demonstrated that going on walks in green spaces and gardening actually have equal efficacy as some antidepressants. and that's a whole nother topic, but I just think that that highlights the importance of, of engaging in those types of activities. And so that would be kind of the, the dis- distillation of our discussion on, on coping skills. I think that at some point, humans have emotions. Emotions are normal. Sadness is normal. Anxiety is normal. At some point, though, that normal human emotion becomes something that we would call an illness or a disorder or, or however you want to categorize it where it's not normal. And pathologic is the kind of fancy term for it. And where that crossover occurs is contextual. It's based off of the individual. It's based off of the experiences they're having. But I think being mindful of what, what does it look like when things are not normal anymore? When does sadness become not okay? And when does sadness become not normal? And I think if the younger generation can tap into maybe some of those things, just looking online and, and reading about those types of things is a good place to start. But where does that line get drawn? And so that way you can start recognizing the things that make it a little bit less normal in yourself, whether that be through journaling or on your walks or thinking about things. And, and that can then help you to clue in to be, to reach out to help for those things, because it's not about removing your sadness and it's not about removing your anxiety. It's about being able to navigate the sadness and the anxiety in such a way that prevents the more severe issues from occurring. So that would be my, my contribution on that topic. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Jen. What do you think are the uh, differences in geographic and racial communities and how they view mental health? I mean, what's really amazing during this pandemic is the inequity and disparity, which were existent before, but they were just more, you know, more known now and uh, they just really surfaced out more in terms of these inequities. So how do you think all those various geographic communities and racial communities view mental health? As a Black woman, I feel like, especially in the Black community, mental health is very like taboo. It's not talked about. It's like an embarrassment. It's if you're a man, you're demasculated if you suffer from mental health and if you're a woman you're weak and I um, personally am diagnosed with anorexia and eating disorders are very prevalent actually in group women of color that they don't speak out about it and when I went to treatment it was really hard for me because there was no other woman of color I was the only woman of color there and it just made me think about the amount of women that are not speaking up because it's shamed or it's an embarrassing aspect of it's embarrassing in their culture and their racial group. And it's something that has been an issue since the beginning because people just believe that you have to be stronger. It's a weakness. Mental health is a weakness. And that's the biggest thing. One of the main stigmas of mental health is that it is a weakness and you can, you are the cause of it. You affect it. You're being lazy or you're just being tired or you're just not wanting to put in the effort or making excuses. 
And it's really hard to navigate that. And so many of my therapists and my psychiatrists are not women of color and they tend to be white. And it's just like hard to not see people that look like you. And though I have had the most amazing teams of specialists, it is hard when you don't see people that look like you all the time because it makes you feel less than, it makes you feel like, it makes you feel isolated. It makes you feel alone because you're like, why are there not other people that look like me that aren't? experience what I'm experiencing because every person wants someone to speak out that remind that they can see themselves in and that's so important to like have someone on the spotlight and who has a voice to be speaking out that looks like them and that is their color that it comes from their culture that you can say oh wow this girl's like me and I have not had that opportunity as much even the people my fellow club leaders are white and it's they're amazing but it's just hard when you see that time and time again. And it's hard for future generations to still see that. Yeah, yeah, arguably correct. I mean, women of color, men of color, you know, people of color are disproportionately affected with this. I'm sure the mental health issues are similarly and in parallel with that. And talking about geographical issues, it also includes institutions like schools. How do your school, you know, view mental health, not just your community? For example, like in our local community in the Bay Area, right, certain high schools have a lot more propensity for mental health issues with depression and suicide. Is it peer pressure? Is it a family pressure? Is it pressure to perform, et cetera? But there seems to be a little bit more increased suicide in some high schools in the Bay Area. And I wonder how do your institution view mental health on those communities? Yeah, so... Coming from Lindbrook, it's a high school in the Bay Area. And so what I've noticed is that a lot of people, they're not really too open about mental health. And I think a lot of the people who are like a lot of the demographic is Asian. And so there's also like the pressure of the model minority with. Yeah. So coming from a perspective, from a student at Lindbrook, we tend to not really talk much about mental health. And most of the demographic of the school is Asian. And so there's a lot of pressure to perform well in school and excel in academics because of the model minority myth. I think that the model minority myth is one of the factors that factor into this pressure. Actually, as a part of Alethea, in one of our issues, there was a line that said that being dumb in Limbrook is deemed as one of the most isolating experiences. And I think that it really spoke out to me because in a culture where like being smart and like having all this pressure to be intelligent and look intelligent, it's really hard to reach out for help when you don't, I guess, fit that. When you are struggling in a class, when you're struggling academically, it's really hard to reach out. And I think that just like in like the Asian community itself, I was actually kind of curious as to like why it's really hard for people to reach out for help. So I did a bit of like <laughs> digging in like the internet and stuff. And I found that some of the culture in Asian communities is that if you do have like any mental health issue, then it reflects badly on your your family since it's like a really family-based culture, people don't really want their family to be seen as bad. And as like Evan has said, it's really like it's seen as a sign of weakness. And so if you do have 
that mental illness and it's seen weakly as a weakness, then it would reflect badly on your family. And so that kind of contributes to that stigma, which makes it really hard to talk about. And I guess just coming back to the environment at Limbrook, I feel that a lot of people are really concentrated on excelling academically and being really high performing, that it's really hard to be vulnerable and to really kind of open up about your struggles because you're trying to build your image of being this perfect student. And so that contributes to why it's really hard for people to open up and talk about it. Yeah, that's understandable when you are put up there on the pedestal with expectations. You cannot be looking weak and vulnerable. And how do you talk about your feelings then, right? John, talk about this this sense of identity and personality and character and those wrapped around mental health issues and stuff like that. Like as you mentioned, when you have a physical abnormality like a heart attack or stroke, it's a lot easier to talk about that than your cholesterol rather than your mental health. How do you think we could circumvent that and have a lot more open dialogue that it is the same diagnosis and that it should not be attached to your personality, your character, and who you are, or your identity, or your soul, even. Sure. I think that's hard to do because a lot of our disorders are so intimately wrapped into, into those things. And it may be that give me 100 years, give us 200 years, that things are a little bit more teased out in terms of, you know, brain-based, more brain-based disorders and, and whatnot. But I think to your point and what I was discussing I so appreciate the perspectives that you all brought on this topic, because I think that you make very clear just how intimately wrapped in to our identity mental health can be. And so, for instance, it may be that in the context with which you exist in high school, if you're not getting an A++++, you're considered a failure. And that precipitates negative self-talk, that precipitates isolation, it precipitates this self-image of worthlessness, hopelessness. And those are some key diagnostic criteria for depression. But that same context, it may be that at a a school one and school over, it's more based off of whether or not you're in the football team or really engaged in sports. And if you're not doing that, then it may be that you're considered a failure. And even then, it can be familial. So if your family views school as super important and you're not succeeding in school, that can be viewed as as failure and then kind of precipitate that. Whereas if you're in a family that couldn't give two craps about school, but really cares about your ability to do dance or something, and and you're really not good at dancing, that can precipitate it. And I think that all of this just speaks to the notion that psychosocial components to mental health are exquisitely important. And as said earlier, they very much paint the, the picture of what mental health looks like for each individual. And that's why it can be so hard to kind of understand, do I have a problem? Do I not have a problem? And what is a problem versus what it's not a problem? One problem for one person may not be a problem for another person, but the doesn't mean that one isn't depression, the other is. And so it speaks to the complexity of of all of this. And then briefly, I'd love to hear more perspectives on kind of in school, what that looks like from Kate and others. But I think that to give a provider perspective on speaking to this idea of cultural humility and providing culturally informed care, it is so hard to do, yet so unbelievably important because I will never be a Black woman and I will never be a woman of color. And yet being able to provide a standard of care and level of care that is equal to everyone else is something that I strive to to do and that many, I would say, of my colleagues strive to do. And yet it is just so complicated and so hard to do. And so 
making sure that you bring a sense of humility to the work that you do and opening up the stage for discussion and being able to hear what is being shared by those who you are treating is so important in mental health. So I just want to take pause and, and appreciate the how vocal you all of you are about this and the information that you're providing. Thank you, John. So Kate, you're next. So I go to Gunn High School, which about 10 years ago, we had a series of cluster suicides. And because of that, Gunn itself has a stigma or a belief surrounding it and telling people, oh, I go to Gunn, you get a certain reaction because it's well known that Gunn is a very good school, but because of that, there is a lot of pressure surrounding it. And I have seen a few suicides even while I've been there. And the club that I'm a part of, it was started by students in response to the suicide cluster. And we also have a wellness center on campus, which is amazing. But despite that, there is still a lot of people that struggle with mental health that just don't talk about it. And I could see for myself, while yes, I do care a lot about school, I knew I wasn't going to do good taking a bunch of AP classes, taking all honors classes, but all my friends around me were doing that. And I just struggled with finding an identity for myself, finding what I'm interested in school when the school I go to creates this environment that if you're not in the highest level, if you're not taking the AP classes, that you are failing, that you're not as smart as everyone. And it is just a struggle. And it was so sad. It's so sad to see that students are struggling. And despite the resources that are try to provide and students trying to talk more about mental health that the students are the ones also that are just continuing on this cycle of creating this pressure and creating a very unhealthy environment where mental health, depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation can just grow because of the way the students see themselves to make academic success and the way that other students will then see that they have a standard to live up to even if they know they can't. Yeah, it is very difficult when the pressure is up in terms of what you need to be accomplished and what's expected of you, either by both peers, your community, your parents, your environment. And to be able to get out of that and still feel good about yourself is, is a challenge. So thank you so much and listen to our uh, Medicine for Good podcast. And I like to wish you a great day. A lot of positive things coming about with the vaccine and with the turning around of the pandemic. Hopefully we will be on the other side soon. Take care. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to Medicine for Good podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please share with family and friends. Rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, ACAS, and YouTube. Follow me on social media at Dr. Jet on Twitter and Facebook. Meanwhile, stay safe, stay well, and stay connected. See you on our next episode.